This is Museum People, a podcast that celebrates individuals connected with the museum field by highlighting their work, passions, opinions, and personalities. In each episode, you'll hear stories and viewpoints from a variety of museum people, unsung workers to executive directors, volunteers to trustees, as they help change the world one visitor at a time. And now, the hosts of Museum People, Dan Yeager and Marika Van Dam. Mariki, you had a great interview down in Washington, D.C. with Diana of Museum Hack, and I'm very intrigued uh, with the whole Museum Hack experience. It's, got, it's, it's somewhat controversial. Do you want to explain it to listeners who may not know anything about it? My understanding of Museum Hack is that it offers an alternative interpretation of a museum's collection. Uh, it's a private tour group uh, that's set up. They come into the museum and they offer more contemporary and updated and hip spins on what the museum happens to offer. Where are they? They're in New York? They're in New York. They're a little more um, tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Right? Irreverent. Irreverent. Yeah. Yeah. Parody. Sassy. Yeah, right. Like they use swears and stuff. Right. Their, their tagline is museums are f***ing awesome. Yeah. Can we say f***ing? Beep. No, and totally we can. We don't have any sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> but if any sponsors are listening, we or, are or open. Children, or We're children. Open. <laughs> and we'll clean up our act. You have to put an E in the advisory <laughs> on <laughs> iTunes. <laughs> I haven't been on any museum hack stuff, and mm. I, I don't know anyone else who has, but mm. I guess... Maybe museum people are not the audience for Museum Hack. It's the general public. Well, I'll tell you this. I know that uh, in the build-up to last year's conference, uh, we, we actually scheduled a conference session with Museum Hack. They presented. And there were a number of people that uh, had contacted us expressing a little bit of concern in the sense that they were not entirely sure that they had a place at the conference, that their their tours were controversial because they were not the official museum tour kind of a thing and then the response and reaction that i got after they presented were that the same people were totally committed they they realized that it was uh, an ancillary positive experience for visitors a new way of engaging potentially new audiences in the museum and the fact that it wasn't the actual official seal of approval tour with docents actually uh, offers a little bit more of a vibrancy and relevance. What struck me about Diana was she has a museum experience. I think she has a museum degree, she said, and right. um, so she cares passionately about museums. And we think these are just, you know, guys coming in who don't care about museums. They just see it as an easy way to make a buck, and that's not true. They come with the great, you know, the best of intentions. Right. So um, that's encouraging, and they get to see the best of museums, the worst of museums, and they choose to stick with us. So. Right. Let's celebrate that. Well, I've often said that the museum field is a much broader one than just simply people working in museums. I mean, from the NEMA perspective, of course, we have institutions, we have individual museum people, but we also have a great degree of independent professionals and uh, our business uh, members and, and the like. And they are all part of the the fabric of the museum community, I think, because they provide us with, um, you know, again, a lot of the innovations and and services that we use. And I think we as museum people need to really embrace that. We really do need to have do a much better job of not making folks that are 
you know, making money. It's not making money off of us and exploiting us. It's actually augmenting what it is that we do. That's so true. We can't keep talking to ourselves. Right. We need people from the outside with different ideas and different perspectives coming in and talking to us. Right. And as you point out, most of those people, including Diana, are actually, they consider themselves museum people. They're just not inside a museum. Well, let's give a listen to Diana. And I also want to say we don't receive any money from Museum Hack. There you go. My name is Diana Montano, and I work for Museum Hack. Museum Hack? What's that? It's this weird company that's founded uh, in New York City, and we do renegade tours of the museums in New York City, the Met and the Natural History Museum, as well as the National Gallery in D.C. and the De Young in San Francisco. What do you predict for the future of museums? Oh, boy. What a broad and, and interesting question. Um... The future of museums, I'd say, I mean, they have a lot of work cut out for them. They've got a lot of people to impress, but I think the future looks like 8 out of 10 bright. Like it's interesting to me that you say they, because you see yourself outside of the museum, and yet I just learned you have a museum studies degree. I do, I do. Um, I say they mostly just because right now I'm working with museums as opposed to inside of museums. Yeah, so um, I consider myself sort of tertiarily part of museums, which is really exciting because I get to do what I love, which is work with museums, but I get to do it with the crazy in creativity and no red tape of a startup, which is really fun. Uh, Nick Ray lets us do all kinds of crazy things that I probably would not be able to do in a museum, which is incredibly fun and very exciting. Is there any museum that you would want to work for? Oh, definitely. Um, I actually really like, well, I worked for a little bit in an internship at the uh, Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History. Love them. Literally wish I could go back every day. Um, But I also visited the Exploratorium when I was in San Francisco, and that museum is ridiculously fun and amazing, and I'd love to see how they do what they do behind the scenes. When you think about the future and about the work you do and museums, do you see it as a separate, always a separate, your, your business separate from a museum, or is there a melding in the future that could happen? Oh, there's definitely a melding, and we like to think ourselves as ourselves as part of a, the mu- museum community, um, even though technically we are not a museum. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what we do every day, not just our tours, but we actually do a lot of audience engagement workshops and other kinds of events where we help museums do what they do um, with the with our help, essentially. We love to sort of help them do what they do better and faster and quicker because sometimes there can be a lot of, um, you know, museum workers are fantastic, but they have so much on their plates that we love to just sort of hand them a package of like, here, let us do it for you for just a little bit and we'll hand it back to you and you can make it even better than we could even predict. Um, For instance, we like to do these events where we will invite millennials into the museum with these cool, fun things that we'll do and then say, all right, great, you guys have, have their attention go forth do some awesome things in sort of the light of how we've done them brought them in and got them interested in your institution what would it take for museums to become truly great i mean i think they are truly great i don't i think they're we're always they're always innovating to become truly great um i think they're kind of already there i love museums i don't know i i mean i can't imagine my life without museums thanks so much thank you that was really fun
it's a very happy moment because one of our own museums here in New England, the Tomaquag Museum of Exeter, Rhode Island, uh, received the IMLS National Medal for Museum Excellence. Yeah, it was crazy. And I was so excited because I was invited to go down to the White House to accompany them. It was a very exciting experience to be with them and to, to just honestly share their unmitigated joy. This is a very small museum. It's an inspiration for the rest of us. It truly is. And, you know, but they are doing such great work and connecting with their communities. And, um, you know, really, they've got such a passion and a family atmosphere to the place. I was very excited to have the opportunity to sit down with Loren uh, for an interview, not in Washington, D.C., much too busy there, uh, rubbing elbows with Michelle Obama and right. so forth. Uh, but there was another event at the Rhode Island State House with the governor and uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and a bunch of uh, politicians honoring the Tomaquag. And afterward, Loren gave me uh, a half an hour or so to, uh, to talk with her a little bit about her experiences and her love for the Tomaquag Museum. She's got great energy and yeah. seems like a great lady to know. And uh, let's give a listen. Yeah. Hello, I'm Loren Spears, and I'm the executive director of Tomaquag Museum. As the executive director, I actually do a lot of things and wear a lot of hats. Um, We are a native-run organization, and so we tell our history from a first-person lens. My degrees are in education, so I also spend a lot of time being an educator and speaking out at public groups and training our additional staff on how to... Um, be an educator with a first-person perspective. So we teach them a lot about storytelling and oral history and how, how to represent um, the indigenous community through that lens. What is the primary audience of the Tamaqua? We have everyone from young children. We have a fantastic children's hour on Thursday mornings from 9 to 10 that's very well attended. And that has kids of all ages. We The way we market it is preschool to homeschool and families on vacation. <laughs> so um, we, we tend to get kids from toddlers right up to around the tweens age. And they really seem to enjoy it because some things are universal for ages. So they come in and they every week we do the Narragansett Welcome Dance. Uh, Lindsay Montanari, our educator, leads this program. And she sings this beautiful song, teaches the kids the dance. Then they um, are given the topic of the day. And from that topic, they go into the museum um, and they do a scavenger hunt looking for things connected to the topic. So if it was around corn, for example, for corn planting moon, um, they would go in there and the scavenger hunt would have things in there that weren't necessarily corn, but connected to corn or growing or or things like that. So it might be a hoe that they have to find. It might be the corn washing basket um, or a corn husk mat. So things that are connected to that. So what it does is each week when these young people come in, it makes them look at the exhibits in different ways where they could walk in one time and think they saw it all. But when you're kind of targeting these little special nuggets, they find these little treasures each time that kind of deepens their knowledge. And then they often do a social dance to from called a stomp dance to our pavilion. Um, and they're either outside or in the pavilion. They are told a traditional story, a short version, because we do all this in an hour. And then they have an art activity that they do to finalize that. So it, it changes. Last week's, they were doing shadow puppets that were characters from the story of how the, the sun got in the sky. And so they love that. And then the next week, they were actually making little paper canoes. Right. 
So this has been a heck of a two months for you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the excitement that's going on? Well, we are having a very um, amazing year, and we have been so blessed. Our funders have been extraordinarily supportive, and this year we were nominated by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse for the Institute of Museum and Library Services National Medal. Actually, technically last year, because it was last August in 2015. In January of 2016, we found out we were one of the top 30 finalists across the nation for this prestigious award, and we were able to spend two months just celebrating being a finalist and, and having all kinds of publicity and state senators giving us accolades and, and, and all kinds of um, folks doing things and coming to our opening of our season event to celebrate being a finalist. And then lo and behold, another month later, we were named one of the top the 10 winners of this national medal this year and were able to fly to Washington, D.C. Why do you think you were awarded this medal? You know, I think... We were awarded this medal because as a very small institution, which literally about just a couple of years ago was one staff part time, uh, you know, to now six staff, um, a very small institution. I think it's the partnerships that we've made, you know, the the relationships we've made across um, organizations from small ones that are native and non-native to large, huge institutions like universities like Brown and Roger Williams University and URI. I think it's that those relationships and the projects that we produce from those relationships that have given us such a wider visibility and an impact. One of our most recent partnerships is with um, the Roger Williams Initiative and Dawn Dove and myself were interviewed this morning um, for that partnership to, to empower the history of the founding of the state and how does that how what was the impacts of the native community because without the native community this probably wouldn't happen the way that it did. Senator Whitehouse made a mention this afternoon that uh, the native story is very often overlooked especially here in New England. Does that motivate you in particular to get the word out about uh, the the impact that the native community had on uh, on this country and where we are today? Most definitely. I mean, we are invisible many a time in our own homeland, and that is very, very difficult. So as a museum that's an educational um, organization and doing outreach and connecting to others is really important. And we often talk about creating dialogue because what I find is people don't mean to leave us out. They just don't know. And so in order for them to know, we have to create opportunities for them to know. Um, One of our exhibits, The Pursuit of Happiness, an Indigenous View, that is a very, very powerful exhibit because it not only talks about the the history of what happened to us, but how we're pursuing things today, but it also spotlights the current events that happen that sometimes stymie the success of our tribal communities to succeed into that full state of happiness um, based off of the historical trauma that's befallen us. And so it can be really powerful showing the the atrocities that happened to indigenous people and, and making us think about it. The fact that you had to be white, male, land-owning, and Christian for it to be really about you. That was that the pursuit of happiness was for for that constituency of this country and not everyone else. 
do you think we're now more sensitive to the native voice? Hmm. I think individuals are more sensitive. I don't think the educational institutions as a whole, as a system are, and certainly not in Rhode Island. I think that um, we have a lot of work to do. Um, and, and we're at the right place and we're talking to the right people so that hopefully some of those changes will happen. There is no curriculum in Rhode Island that requires them to uh, speak to the impact of the indigenous people here, the Narragansett Nation as the only federally recognized uh, indigenous nation in Rhode Island. And often teachers who are well-meaning, I've been a teacher for many a year, they're perpetuating the mythology that they knew and learned when they were going through school. And teacher education doesn't really um, focus on this either. So Tomaquag Museum is really trying hard to create resources and opportunities for teachers and educators of all different kinds of layers to be able to impact the, the knowledge out there. Switching gears a little bit, what is your pathway into the museum field? You said you were an educator, but how'd you wind up here? Well, I grew up here first, so I was very young when I, my earliest memory of being at Tomaquag Museum and being one of the native performers, if you will, or participants, um, was when I was five. You know, uh, Princess Red Wing would set us to saying a poem or doing a dance, um, and so I grew up participating at Tomaquag Museum, going to the ceremonies and being part of the, the programming that would go out to different institutions and do performances and things like that. And um, I served on the board over many years. And then um, I became the director in around 2003. Um, I founded a small school at the museum um, called Nuitawan School. And it means our home in the Narragansett language, a little play on words. And I ran that school till 2010. But at the same time, um, the board decided since I had so much energy and so much so many ideas that I should just be the executive director of the whole entire thing. So um, I kind of became the executive director around the bout. What kinds of challenges do you have that are particularly because you are an indigenous museum? Well, the fundraising has always been a challenge. I think there's there's a couple of things that are factors in that. Um, we have a majority indigenous board. It's not. It doesn't have to be full. It's like fifty one percent or more. And at the moment, we have a one hundred percent indigenous staff. Um, I think that you're not always in the networks of giving when you sometimes have, um, we tend to, our board has lots of PhDs and lots of um, people that are connected to museum studies and native studies and, and the native arts and culture and things like that. And I think those are not necessarily the same people that are connected to networks of wealth. And so most people think of boards as boards that really can fundraise in that way. And we sort of don't have that exact kind of structure on our board. That can cause some some difficulties um other than that, I mean, on the, on the actual mission of the museum, I think we have great staff and great board and we do exactly what we need to do. Um, but we're learning. I guess that's the thing. We're learning how to do that other piece. And that means we're a little bit behind the curve mm. on, on some of those things. And we don't always have the people that can open the doors instantly to other people that are connected in that way. I know the term decolonization uh, is something that's on the lips of a number of folks to basically turn their uh, indigenous uh, either collections or museums themselves uh, to open the doors more. Is that something that you support or are you actively like consulting folks on how to do it? We talk about decolonizing our museum, and we're really looking at it from a perspective of the nomenclature. And 
the terminology that's used decolonizing your museum in in collections management for example there's a certain set of nomenclature that you're supposed to be using but yet some of it is really contradictory to our culture so when when it talks about ethnographic collections for example to to the definition of ethnographic is someone studying someone else's culture well that's offensive and especially in our own museum so we are working on trying to come up with terminology um, so that we can decolonize the process of managing our collection so we're working on it that way i i you know so we're we're breaking things apart and and we're challenging in a proactive way not in a confrontational way people to think about something from a different perspective so we do a lot of um work with other museums and other educational institutions to look at how they're representing indigenous culture and we're asked you know i was just recently at RISD at one of the NEMA conferences and one of the things was to talk about our perspective of the way that we run our museum and how that looks and and how do we think about that in, in representing indigenous culture and you know one of the biggest things we often tell people is bring indigenous people to the table and have them be part of your advisory group you're not going to change your the whole structure of your institution to be a, an indigenous board obviously if that's not the intention but if you're going to be doing a big exhibit about indigenous people bring them to the table and get their perspectives way back at the beginning when you're first formulating the exhibit don't please don't wait until the last minute and ask for a rubber stamp at the aam conference a couple of months ago i heard dr eric jolly give the best definition of uh tokenism and he said that it's the difference i might be butchering this but it's the difference between inviting people for input and inviting people for impact tokenism being the well we're going to have somebody give input but as opposed to making a meaningful difference i thought it was brilliant yes that is brilliant i i think that's truly true because there are times where i'm invited for input and i'm as with many indigenous people that are out there in this sort of education museum world we're often the only one at the table um and i'm usually shocked when there's other indigenous people there i'm always so happy about that but i'm usually shocked um so I think, I think you're right, that it has to be impactful. Loren, you seem to have so much energy, this beautiful spirit. Where do you find your motivation? Oh, well, um, you know, the children, the, the new generation. But I will also say my grandmother, Eleonora Dove, um, who was going to be 98 shortly, she inspires me because she always did things that were impactful. And she shared culture in multiple layers and levels um, through Dovecrest Indian Restaurant and through her work with my grandfather traveling around the country and going to different Native gatherings and representing the Native community and speaking in front of others. And I feel that, you know, through my grandparents and my mother and my aunts, I learned so much and I think that that's what gives me the energy to pass that on to the next generations and create these opportunities for our next generation to find their voice and to express themselves. And a museum is a wonderful opportunity for them to share their cultural knowledge with the public. And it gives me um, inspiration to keep doing it and to see the next generations being really empowered. Do you ever get frustrated? Sure. (laughs) As my husband will say, (laughs) 
yeah, there's days where it's tough. You know, it's some days it's tough when you don't know if you have enough to make it all work and whether you have enough funding or enough energy or or just enough vision and and know how to get from point A to point Z. But there's one of those famous quotes that used to be on my refrigerator and I'm going to totally butcher it, but it was about, you know, just doing one thing, going one step, you know, and just keep going. And I think that's what I always did on the difficult days. I just said, do one thing. Last question. If you had any advice for somebody that wanted to follow in your footsteps, what would you give them? Um, boy, that one's a hard one. I would say that education has to be the frame because I think that the hard work that we do and the hard topics that we tackle, sometimes if 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 it's done in an educational lens, which I think Princess Red Wing and all the people that came before me did it in that lens, people can hear that. It, they don't feel attacked. And so therefore they can listen and they can communicate back and forth the points of view. And then they kind of grow on the spectrum and kind of can understand your point of view um, through that educator's lens. And I think that that's important. And I guess more than anything else, I would just say, you know, reach for your dreams. If you think, if you can dream the idea, you can do the idea. And that all you have to do is keep doing. And it's only if you quit that it doesn't come to fruition. Thank you, Loren. Totally inspirational. It's really, really, really great pleasure getting to know you. Thank Truly. you so much. Thank you, Katabatash. message that they uh, convey at the Tomaquag uh, is is just so important. And uh, in the interview with Loren, we talked uh, a bit about just, uh, you know, history. How do we interpret history here and um, in the United States? And it's, it's even, even though we are making some strides towards having a much more inclusive uh, teaching of our history, it's not all just the myths of the pilgrims and, and the noble uh, pioneers that you know, won the West and so forth. I mean, all of these things that we used to talk about. Uh, we still have a long way to go long with way recognizing to go. that there were people here before us. Yeah, yeah. No, it's shameful. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And there are a number of Native American related museums here in New England. Interestingly, though, uh, there are very few that are actually uh, that have their boards primarily Native mm. American. That their staves are from you know the indigenous people and the like. A lot of Native American museums, and I didn't understand this, are started out as archaeological museums with white people collecting Native objects. Yes. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a the ones that are very sensitive to this are are engaging and decolonizing their museums. They recognize that they need to have more um, Native participation on their boards and the like so good for them doing it but i'm interested that that's even an issue and uh, how much do we talk about that really yeah, we do don't we t- i no. mean the museum field doesn't really focus on it we are very aware of things like nagpra and and the like of course from a collection standpoint but um you know i think that's something though that we should be supporting a lot more is more native voices in especially their native museums yeah it's interesting too we um 
you know, we interviewed Margaret Middleton, you yep. did, and she talked about language in museums and how that applies to um, LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. And the language in museums around Native peoples is just as important to to interpret correctly right. and, and how we tell the stories. And I think Lauren talked a little bit about that yeah, in the interview. Yeah. One thing that I thought was really significant as I've gotten to know Loren a bit, and she talks about it in the interview, um, and that is the family tradition that she has at that museum. She talks about her early experience there as a young girl, uh, being part of the museum as a dancer and, and the like, because her mother was the director of the museum. And as a matter of fact, her grandmother, whom I, I met was, uh, was like 90 years old or whatever. She was one of the museum founders. And it echoes back to one of the things that we talked about in season one of Museum People, which was the family trade. Yeah. The idea of how many people are uh, the sons or daughters of somebody that worked in a museum. And they are inspired to go into the family trade. We we're talking about Susan and Emily Robertson yep, yep. Uh, in that context. Well, this was certainly, a, with Loren and her family, a multi-generational passion for this particular museum. I love that. It's it's all about normalizing, mm. you know, right? If you study show, if you bring kids to museums, they'll be lifelong learners. Yeah. And this, this is a great example of that. Well, and you can just tell Loren's passion for museums in general in education and uh, and her uh, her way of life, uh, the the native traditions, her tribe. I mean, it's just it really pours out her enthusiasm. Uh, this is not she's not going through the motions. This is something that means a lot because it's etched on her DNA. Right. It's part almost. of her family story. Right. Wow, yeah. That's so great. Yeah. And to just have that connection and feel that so many of us don't when we go to museums, yeah. we feel left out on the stories being told. Right. And here she was just growing up. It's normal to have your family stories told yeah. in a place like this. Well, when you have someone like that at the helm, it you can't help but get wrapped up in that excitement mm. and want to work for her, want to support her, want to give money. Yeah. You know the whole thing. That's why that's that's leadership. When we talk about can leaders be taught? Um it's that passion that has to be there underneath. I also liked that she incorporates many many young people into the life of the museum. I met this individual named Christian Hopkins, who um, is a very gregarious, uh, engaging young man that has such a bright future ahead of him. And he, too, totally embraces the culture. Um, And she brought him uh, to Washington, D.C. Each of the medal winners uh, bring their director and then a community member that represents sort of that transformational moment. And he's just such an outstanding person. I got to know him a little bit. And he has such great ties with the museum. He doesn't plan on being a museum professional. He wants to be a filmmaker and a business person. Um, But you can tell that that, um, sort of like our Rich Sheridan example of, you know, folks that are not necessarily going to be museum professionals, but the impact of that museum uh, transforms them in ways that affects some other area of our life in the world. Totally. That, yeah. And he's going to be a lifelong lover and supporter of museums, and that's, yeah. that's what we're striving for. Yeah. You know, one thing I, that I thought of when I, was, when I heard the interview was this idea of having, having the students around all the time and trying to create this museum alumni for your museum. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, reminded me of the old Sturbridge Village, what they're trying to do yeah. with bringing in daycare right. to their historic site. Um, you mean a uh, charter school? Charter school. You know more about this than yeah, I do. Right. Fill in our listeners. Right. So Old Sturbridge Village, run by a gentleman named Jim Donahue, who came came to Old Sturbridge Village as a former charter school headmaster. Um, they've been actually making uh, a, an attempt to locate a charter school at OSV. It failed last year. Uh, you have to have a legislation approved. But they're optimistic that it's going to pass this year. And I find it to be an interesting concept because day-to-day, that creates a huge relevance to having people come to your museum on a regular basis, obviously, and create that sense of mm, emotional attachment that we all want. Absolutely. And what a great way to bring life to an organization. Have that energy, have those new ideas. It's like a little incubator. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, promoting. I think it's great to do that you know there's camps and whatnot that go to art museums and whatnot but um man i would have loved to have been in a history historical organization for school how rad yeah right huh yeah marika yes it's a wrap (laughs) another great episode down dan yeah this is uh yeah this was a special one i i really enjoyed that i hope everybody's been inspired by uh loren and uh diana and uh, the things that are happening in this field have a good feeling for what's going on here. Nice. Yeah. Well, I think um, I just want to give a thanks to all of our listeners. We're doing um, pretty well Mm -hmm. in the downloads. Um, Keep it up. Downloading slash listening. They're all the same. Yep. So thanks, everyone. And Keep keep giving us feedback. As always. Hashtag museum people. And uh, we've got that special little web form uh, on our website. We're already looking forward to season three. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) When is season three? I don't know. We have a conference to produce. Some point uh, next year, we'll be be putting on season three. Um, So this is for you, people. Well, we are doing a live podcast at the uh, NEMA conference, and we should probably plug that, too, uh, a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to be on Veterans Day, the Friday of the uh, conference, and I'm very excited about it because we've already gotten a few uh, folks lined up, veterans that are museum professionals, to talk with and uh, get a little sense of their experiences, uh, how their time in service might have contributed to uh, what they do now in the museum world, their transition from the military into museums and the like. So I think it'll be a very, uh, very fun and meaningful podcast. Plus, we hope that there are a lot of people in the audience because uh, we might be doing some random Random person on the street interviews, which uh, hopefully will be a lot of fun as well. You'll get to see how much of the podcast actually gets edited out. Yeah, because this will be straight. (laughs) straight. (laughs) That'll be fun. Yeah. Um, When is the conference and where? conference is november 9th through 11th in mystic connecticut well we look forward to seeing everyone in mystic connecticut if not before and thanks for listening yeah we love you museum people see you next time next time on museum people i've been verbally assaulted multiple times i was like literally like spit in the face and called mentally ill because i asked someone where their admission ticket was you know i want to know behind the scenes how the sausage was made so i can see why i would be looked at with suspicion These are workers that could have chosen to stand anywhere else or, you know, rip tickets anywhere else or, like, serve coffee anywhere else, but they chose your museum for a reason Mm -hmm. because you had some really knowledgeable people behind those clip-on ties. (laughs) 
Museum People is a production of the New England Museum Association, which connects, inspires, and empowers cultural institutions to provide their communities with deep and authentic experiences. Have an idea or comment for Museum People? Go to nemanet.org slash museumpeople to provide feedback, get information about episodes, and learn how to subscribe. Thanks for listening.